Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Judges. Because uh, although we're going to look at Hebrews, we're going to be in Judges, and then we're going to be in 1 Samuel, and then we're going to be in Daniel, and we're going to be all over the place. So you can go to Hebrews 11 if you want, but we're just going to be looking at two verses which are kind of like a jack-in-the-box, you know? One of those little cans that you unscrew the lid and everything just kind of blows out with all the confetti. Well, that's what it's here. We're having a compressed section of text which has all of these saints crushed into two verses. And as soon as we open up the lid, they're going to blow out. So you'll see how that works in just a minute. We've been looking at Hebrews 11 just to learn lessons about faith. What is faith? Why is it important? What is it not? How is it demonstrated? What does it look like when it's lived out in our lives? Do you have to be holy? Do you have to be a Jew? Do you, you know, who, who can have faith? And these are the things that the text is teaching us. And hopefully all of us will be encouraged to just trust God. To just have more faith in God. Because God is the God of the impossible. We've seen faith defined and lauded and illustrated and, and we see, you know, faith in worship with Enoch and faith walking or faith in worship with Abel and faith walking with God with Enoch. We've, we've seen, uh, you know, through Abraham faith just trusting God for things that I'm sure Abraham thought this just couldn't be right. You don't want me to go kill my son, do you? And yet he still obeyed, trusting God, realizing that he wasn't God. He didn't know everything and that God was worthy of his complete faith and trust. Faith is not merely uh, for holy people. It's not merely for Jews. Uh, when you think about it, all those first people mentioned were before the nation of Israel was formed. They didn't come around until Exodus 19. And though Abraham was uh, the father of the Hebrews and eventually the father of those the line that produced the 12 tribes, you have to realize he came from a pagan background. And, uh, and so what's encouraging as we look at the text again this morning, we're going to see uh, again that God uses ordinary average sinners to accomplish great deeds if they will just trust him in faith. Hebrews eleven thirty two through 34 reads as follows. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And from our text, I'm going to try and... <laughs> give you nine incredible deeds that faith can perform. Just so you can see examples of the kinds of things faith performs. What happens is, is as we look at this text, you may be thinking to yourself, well, this isn't going to happen to me. This isn't going to happen to me. And you know what? It won't. A lot of these things only happened one time and will only happen one time. The important thing is to realize that the God we worship is the same God they worship. And the deeds they did, though we will not perform the same exact deeds that they did, we will be able to do the same magnitude, the same degree of deeds, if God so wills, as we trust God by faith. 
before we get into our outline, verse 32 uh, says, and we'll just use this for kind of introduction, and what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of, and just stop there. Time is going to fail us. I just want you to know, I was very acutely aware of this as I put the sermon together. Time fails us to even begin to look at all the people we could look at in relationship to what this text says. I could easily preach nine sermons on this text, no problem. I could probably preach a lot more. There are so many great things here to to extract that it's really quite a torment to just cover it. However, when we look at the whole thing and we get the big picture, the big idea, and that is faith in an all-powerful God can accomplish incredible deeds through ordinary sinners. Look at verse 34 and 35 where we read, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms. This will be our first one. Faith conquers kingdom. Exhibit A, Barak. Barak. Now, if you haven't had your devotions and judges recently, you're probably thinking, I don't quite remember Barak. Um, who was Barak? Who was this man? Well, uh, he was a man who was raised up during the time of the judges. You need to understand the judges, uh, the times a, a little bit there. The book of Judges begins by saying that when Joshua died, he was the one who led them into the land to conquer the land. Um, when Joshua died and the elders of Israel died, who had witnessed the miracles of God in the desert, when that generation died, then the people turned away from the Lord. They, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so God then, being faithful to the covenant that he made with them uh, on Mount Sinai, sent enemies to uh, persecute, kill, afflict, rule over them. And, and then the people get humbled. And they cry out to the Lord. God has mercy on them when they, when they cry out. He then raises up a judge or a military leader and that person kind of rules them and, and acts uh, as God's instruments to drive out the bad guys, and bring peace to the land for a time, and then after a certain time period, they forget the Lord again. And they keep going through these cycles, not learning the lesson over and over again, all the way through the book of Judges. And so, when we come to Judges chapter 4, and if you want, you can turn to Judges chapter 4. When we come to Judges 4, we begin to see one of these instances where Israel has fallen into sin... And God has given Israel into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, and his military leader, Sisera. And the Canaanite army under Sisera is formidable. They have 900 iron chariots. And uh, think of it as maybe 900 tanks coming against foot soldiers. Uh, there's one thing to have to come against people in hand-to-hand. It's another thing when they have horses and iron chariots. So it's pretty intimidating. Israel, though, is humble. They cry out to the Lord. And then we read this in Judges chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, the, uh, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded... 
Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army and his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon. And I will give him into your hand. Here we see Deborah, a woman is judging Israel. Now right there you think, whoa, this is kind of unusual. It is exceedingly unusual. As a matter of fact, it is a sign of shame to Israel as God wanted men to rule. I know that may sound sexist, but you'll just have to take it up with God. God, for instance, laments the terrible state of Israel in Isaiah chapter 3 verses 12 and says, Oh, my people, their oppressors are children and women rule over them. It was not a good thing. But since the men were not rising up and taking leadership, God raised up a woman. And not only did he raise up Deborah to judge them, he also spoke to her and she was a prophetess. So they had to come to her both for counsel and for the word of the Lord. And so this is what happens. Barak shows up and God speaks through Deborah and tells Barak, go fight against Sisera's army and his 900 chariots. But Barak does something unprecedented in all of the Bible. If you look at Judges 4, verses 8 and 9, then Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. Now, because of Barak's statement, some have seen him as kind of cowardly and like, listen, I'm not going out into battle unless a woman comes with me um, you know, and fights for me or alongside of me. Um, I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, Barak is a military leader. He's certainly a brave warrior, a valiant man. Uh, he commanded Israel's army. But he realized that Jabin's army, Sisera's army, was far superior to his. It would be like um, like getting, you know, three average football players from a high school football team and saying, okay, what we want you to do is play a game. I know you only have three people against this NFL championship team. Now, the question is, who's going to win? And the answer is, whoever the Lord wants to win. Because the battle is the Lord's. You see, we if we aren't living in faith, when we look at that, they're all they're going to be slaughtered. But if we're looking at it biblically, we say the battle is the Lord's, and when God, you know, speaks through a prophet and says, "Go here, I will give them to you," you can be assured it's going to happen, even though you're greatly outnumbered. And so, Barak, I don't think is saying, "Listen." I'm scared, and if you go out there and grab a sword and hack with me in the field of battle, then certainly we might win. I don't think Deborah is going to go hand-to-hand combat. You know, it happens in the movies. It just doesn't. Women don't do hand-to-hand combat well with guys. Oh, one blow, and it's pretty much over. Uh, I know Hollywood is trying to make us think otherwise. It's just not true. But I think he wanted Deborah to kind of be his cell phone with instant dial to God on the field. That's why. 
He knew he was going against really impossible situation here with a much more a fortified army, and he wanted Deborah to come with him so if he needed to, he could talk with God because she was the link to God. However, because Barak asked for Deborah to accompany him into a battle... She said, you know what, you're not going to receive the honor, but a woman is. And you would think from the text that she's talking about herself, but no. Deborah accompanied Barak and his army into battle. Barak defeated Sisera's army, and Sisera fled on foot. And he came to a Kenite woman's tent. The Kenite woman was named Jael. And he's tired, and he's been running, and his army's been defeated. And she sees and realizes who he is and says, why don't you just come into my tent? And uh, let me give you a little milk, and uh, and uh, you just lay down here. I'll give you a blankie, and uh, you just go to sleep here. I'll guard. If anybody comes, I'll make sure I warn you way before they get here. And feeling safe, feeling relaxed from the milk, he falls asleep. But he got a splitting headache. Judges 4.21 says, But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg, seized a hammer in her hand, and went secretly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, and went through into the ground, for she was, for he was sound asleep and exhausted. So he died. No kidding. <laughs> and thus Jael was honored for killing the military general Sisera and not Barak. Now we might wonder why Barak is here. You know, why is he even in the text? He didn't seem to be uh, all that great. He doesn't really seem to mention a whole bunch of his faith statements. But it's this. Barak was told by God to go to battle against a much greater army, and he did, trusting in the Lord. That's it. That's why he's in the text. You know, sometimes when you may be fearful, but you can still obey God in faith. You know, the world and Satan and unbelievers who hate God are against us. Their their number and power are greater than our own. But when God has spoken, when he has made promises, we can trust in the Lord. You know, some of you have been without jobs, but are you starving? No. Are you living in the streets? No. You're still clothed. You still have a place to sleep. And, and, you know, things may be tight and they may be hard. But, you know, when you think back, you think, you know, they were tight and they were hard when I had a job. I don't know what's happening. Like what the psalmist says in Psalm 37, verse 25, I have been young and now I am old and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. When God's word is clear, even though the odds are against us, even though we are fearful, let us proceed in faith. Let us trust in God and see him accomplish great deeds through us like conquering kingdoms. Second, faith performs great deeds of righteousness. Look at Judges 6. In Judges 6, God calls a man, Gideon, to defeat the the armies of Midian. But before he sends them out into battle, he goes, but there's one thing I need you to do for me first, Gideon. You know your father who has set up a huge idol worshiping center to Baal and to Asherah? Asherah is kind of like, a, well, it is a Canaanite fertility goddess and they usually carved a big like totem pole to her. I want you to take two bulls with you and I want you to go to the Baal 
Asherah worship, idol worshiping center. I want you to pull it down, pull the Baal center down with the bulls, and then I want you to chop down Asherah. Then I want you to take the wood from the idol center, kill one of the bulls, and offer it up to me as a burnt offering. We read this in Judges 6.27. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Notice, was he scared? Yeah. Did he obey? Yeah. You may be fearful, but you can still have faith in God you know, he was, he was afraid for his life and he, he was justified because verse 30 says the men of the city wanted to kill him. And then what was interesting is deliverance rose up from a very unlikely source. The men of the city wanted to kill him. And verse 31 says of Judges 6, but Joash, that's Gideon's father again, who owned and built the worship center, the idol worshiping center, said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. That was a pretty brilliant defense, right? Listen, if Baal's God, he can defend himself. He can, he can take out Gideon if he can. And that is where, um, Gideon got his name, Jerubal, which let Baal defend himself. And that became his kind of nickname from that time on. The whole point is, is he stood out in faith and he tore down idolatry in Israel, even in the face of death. He didn't know he was going to escape. God just said, do it. Samuel is another one we could turn to. We won't even turn to a text. He, he did so many acts of righteousness. He, during a time of such great evil, he was the, Samuel was the last judge of Israel and the first prophet of Israel. He was kind of the transition guy between judges ruling Israel and kings ruling Israel because he was the one who anointed Saul and David. He mustered up the Israelites' troops to defeat the idol-worshipping Philistines at Mizpah. He constantly spoke out on behalf of God to the people, telling them the truth, telling them what was right, confronting the king. I mean, his whole life was one of exhortation, correction, telling people to turn to God. I think we need to never forget that deeds of righteousness, whether they be great or small, are always accomplished by faith and can only be accomplished by faith. If you don't have faith, you're not doing deeds of righteousness. God requires it. He requires it. And Samuel is one of the greatest leaders in Israel who constantly walked before the Lord and spoke out on his behalf to the wicked generation in which he lived Third, faith obtains promises. Consider Samson. You think, Samson? You know, when Samson comes up, what do you think? What comes to your mind? When I come up, womanizer. A guy whose brain fell out every time he saw a good-looking woman. I mean, he had issues, didn't he? Major issues. He was immoral, just polygamous. I mean, he just had issues. But... Uh, the angel of the Lord appears to a woman who's married to a man named Manoah and says, listen, I know you're barren, but you're going to have a son and I want you to make sure he stays a Nazarite, no wine, don't cut his hair all of his life. And then a promise is made in verse 5 of Judges 13. 
And that promise is, he shall, speaking of Samson, shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So here's a clear promise and the purpose of Samson's life. God is raising up Samson to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And though Samson was not wise in his choice of women, and those, those ungodly women tormented his soul and caused him a lot of grief, God yet did incredible deeds through Samson by faith. He believed God. Yes, he was immoral. He believed God. He still trusted in God. And time will fail us if we even survey his exploits. You know, he, 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 a lion attacked him and he tore it in two. He, he killed 30 Philistines to pay a debt that he lost because his wife betrayed him and gave the answer to the Philistines. He then caught 300 foxes and put torches between their tails and let them run through the fields of the Philistines, burning all their crops down. Later on, killed 1,000 more Philistines. He, he, some men were lying in wait for him, and they were going to ambush him as he came out the, the gates of Gaza after having a little liaison with a prostitute. And, and when they were about ready to pounce on him, he, Samson got to the gates of the city and tore him out of the ground, lifted up the gates and carried him up the hill and planted him up there. They thought, you know, we better leave him alone. But though God gave him this strength, he wasn't really using it except periodically to beat back the Philistines. And finally he married another wicked woman named Delilah who betrayed him for money to the Philistine lords. And she nagged him and nagged him until she found out the secret of his strength. And when it was discovered that if the Nazarite vow was broken, his strength would leave him. And when he was sleeping, they cut his hair. The Philistines then captured him. They gouged out his eyes and turned him into a human mule, into grind grain. And periodically they would bring him out. And that's what happened in Judges chapter 16. Towards the end of the chapter in Judges 16, they're having this huge celebration to Dagon, who is the god, the false god of the Philistines. And they're talking about how Dagon is the supreme god. And they're meeting in this huge, like, Colosseum-type structure that has a giant balcony with these two pillars that support it. And they bring Samson out, and they put him between the pillars, and they say, oh, look at him, he's blind, and he's our trophy, and this proves that our god is better than his god. But while he was in prison while he was grinding grain his hair grew back and we read in Judges 16 28-30 then Samson called to the Lord and said O Lord God please remember me and please strengthen me just this time O God that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes Samson grasped the two middle pillars of which the house rested and braced himself against them with one hand with one on his right hand and the other on his left and Samson said let me die with the Philistines and he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it so the dead and whom he killed at his death were more than those he killed in his life and we look at Samson and we say well but he wasn't very godly no he wasn't he was a womanizer true he didn't try very hard to use the resources God gave him to do what God called him to do true And usually when he did attack the Philistines, it was all out of selfish revenge. True. True. But who here would dare boast of their godliness before the Lord? 
I mean, which one of us could say, you know, I've never engaged in immorality in either thought or deed? How many here could boast that they have kept the law of Christ perfectly? How many here can say that they have used all the resources God has given them only and always for his glory? We're just like Samson. And yet God will use us. That's why he's here. He's a major sinner. But the one thing he had going for him is he believed God. And God used him to accomplish incredible deeds. And he will use us if we trust him too by faith. Four, faith shuts the mouths of lions. Now, who could we talk about here? Well, we know that Samson killed the lion. I don't know if he shut his mouth. I think he kind of opened it wide open when he ripped the lion in two. Uh, we could talk about David, who tells Saul that he grabbed the beard of a lion and struck it dead. We could talk about Benaiah, one of David's mighty men, who went down into a pit on a snowy day just to see if he could take a lion single-handedly. <laughs> Machoism has been around a long time. But surely the person in view here, the preeminent example, is Daniel. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter 6, we can investigate this story of Daniel and the lion's den. One of my favorites. Daniel, of course, was uh, living during the time of Darius the Mede. And... Uh, Daniel was very prosperous. The God just blessed him and blessed him. And his colleagues were jealous of him and they wanted to get rid of him. He made them look bad because of his faithfulness. So they first tried to find a, a, a way to accuse him, but they couldn't. His life was so blameless. So they said, well, let's invent something so that we can get him in trouble with regard to the faithfulness in which he worships his God. So they came to Darius and said, how about this? Go king, live forever. How about you pass a law that no one can worship any other God but you for 30 days? Now, that's pretty flattering when all of your officials come and say, Hey, you should do this. And, well, okay. So Darius then signs the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked, that no one can worship any other God but him. And Daniel, though, loving God, continues to worship him like he always has. His colleagues see him, they turn him into the king, and though Darius likes him, the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. So, Daniel is cast into the lion's den, and Darius goes back and prays and fasts all night, and he comes back in the morning to see if Daniel's still alive, and in Daniel chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, we read, Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God, send his angel and shut the lion's mouths that they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. I don't imagine that any of us will be thrown into a pit full of hungry lions. But I imagine that some of you have and will experience times when maybe your job is at stake because of people who are jealous Maybe you'll be thrown into some terrible sickness or some terrible accident will happen to you. And you know, God is able to deliver you from those people at your work who don't like you. 
from that sickness, from that accident. I had a friend one time who uh, was driving. I forget what happened, but he flew off the freeway. His car went upside down, fell down quite a ways and landed on its roof, blew out all the windows and smashed the roof pretty much flat. And he crawled out and he was unhurt. And the car was upside down and he was just thinking, man, how did I get out of there? And how, how you know, he's kind of, you know, like, what? You know, I'm still okay. This is odd. Well, later on, he went to the junkyard and he, he said, Every, right around where I was, it just looked like there was an invisible roll bar in there that just protected me. And I escaped. See, God can do that. Now, that doesn't mean God's going to do that every time. Maybe he wants you to die and go home to be with him. Maybe he wants you to suffer for some purpose of his own. The point is that God can deliver you even from a pit full of hungry lions. And we know they were hungry because right after that, all those men who accused him and tricked the king were thrown in with their families and the lions had a great feast. God does not always rescue his people from every danger, but he always rescues them from hell and eternal death. Remember what Jesus said to Martha when he came to raise Lazarus from the dead? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who believes in me will never die. Do you believe that? And see, that is where Christians find their ultimate deliverance. They don't put it in the government and this world and how many locks they have in their house. No, they trust in the Lord. Faith will deliver every true believer from judgment and death. Fifth, faith quenches the power of fire. Now, who could we talking about here? Fire, fire. Ah, Daniel 3. Turn back a couple chapters. Here we have the time of Nebuchadnezzar, proud, arrogant, narcissistic, very ego-centered. And Nebuchadnezzar, being the egomaniac that he is, having this huge cavernous void in him to glorify himself, has a plan. He's going to build a statue 90 feet tall and cover it with gold. Now think of one of those little Oscar things, you know. A 90-footer. This ceiling's about 30 feet. A 90-foot statue. That's big. And he puts it into the plain of Dura so that when you're looking over the flat expanse, what sticks up is this huge gold image of Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, and it looks just like him. And is he ever proud of it? And he invites all the rulers from his entire empire to come and dedicate the image. Thousands show up from his empire of all different levels of authority in his kingdom in this huge plain. And they all stand up and there jutting up from the desert floor is this huge golden image, this icon, and Nebuchadnezzar has this idea that uh, he forgot to tell them about, but it goes like this. Now, we're going to have the orchestra play a little ditty, and when they do, all of you fall down and worship the image, and if you don't, ah, we just happen to have a brick kiln here, we're going to throw you in the fire. In other words, commit idolatry or burn. And that was his plan. 
And so what happens is, is the orchestra plays its little ditty, everybody bows down, and you can just see Nebuchadnezzar looking out of all those people, worshiping his image, smiling, just, you know, filling up his cavernous heart with glory, just, mm, mm, when some servants come up and say, Oh, king, we have something to tell you. There are three Jews here who aren't bowing down. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated because he's standing and three Jews are standing. And pretty soon everybody's looking and discovers that the king is being defied by three Jews in front of all the rulers of his empire. And the king is furious, so he talks to them and finds out whether the matter is in fact true. And when he discovers that it is true, he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. We're going to play the ditty again. If you don't fall down and worship me, you're going in the fire. And so everybody watches. And they won't do it. And then we counter some of the greatest words of faith found in all the Bible in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need. I love that. We don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't even need to talk to you. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the image, the golden image that you have set up. That is bold. They trusted God big time. And they defied the king in front of all the officials in the entire empire of Babylon. Well, you can imagine, Nebuchadnezzar is just so infuriated. His, I like how the King James puts it. His visage was altered. His face crinkles up like a dried up raisin. He gives orders to have the furnace heated seven times hotter. So hot, in fact, that those who end up throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the flames die from pitching them in. And you can see the satisfaction on Nebuchadnezzar's face as he's wringing his hands like, I'm going to get you and I will show you who's Lord. And Daniel 3, verses 24 and 27 say some remarkable things as he's watching them be cast in and his own men slain from the flames. Wait. The text says, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look! I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who do you think that was? 
Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out here, you servants of the Most High God. And come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. So not only do they defy the king and refuse to commit idolatry, they do it in front of everybody and everybody gathers around closer to examine this amazing thing that has happened. Nebuchadnezzar then all of a sudden gets a clue. I'm not God. And we read this in Daniel 3, 28 and following, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. And the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. They all came, Nebuchadnezzar thought, to worship him. They all left under the pain of death that they better worship the Most High God. And if they don't, their houses would be turned to a rubbish heap and they themselves would be torn limb from limb. You know, you may not be cast into a fiery furnace for refusing to commit idolatry, but you know what? You're going to be encouraged and enticed to commit idolatry. It's all around us. As a matter of fact, I think we could all probably say we all do it to a degree every day. Whenever you take anything that should be devoted to the Lord and you give it to yourself or anybody else, that's idolatry. And though you may never escape, uh, have to escape from the fires of a huge brick kiln, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will escape the fires of hell. And God will deliver you. And just as he delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, faith in Christ will deliver you from God's wrath. Six, faith delivers from the edge of the sword. The word edge in, in Hebrews 11.34 is plural in the Greek. It's really edges. And the Greek word is not really edge. It's mouths. Uh, swords are often described as devouring those they kill. And so here it is who is delivered from the mouths, plural, of many swords. Well, who, who is that? Well, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, David were all men of war. They all ran into the fray. You know, those battles back then, they're pretty, you know, there's none of this, you know, 15 miles away with a computer and a satellite launching some missile into another country. You see the guy face to face, you rush into a battle and a big clash and hack and parry and stab and try and crush the other person's life while there's people all around you and while you're killing somebody else, somebody else could just do a backhand and cut your head off. And yet they went into battle time and time again and never died in battle. They escaped the edge of the sword. 
We could talk about Elijah, who went up against Jezebel's false religion and she loved the worship of Baal and created a small army of false prophets to Baal and Elijah killed them all in one day. And Jezebel was furious. And she sought to kill him, but couldn't. And in the end, she was dead and the dogs are licking up her blood. Or we could talk about Elisha, who when he was approached by the enemies of Israel, those who wanted to take his life, said, listen, if I am a man of God, let fire come down out of heaven and consume your garrison. Fire. Word gets out. Another group comes. More fire. The third group is extremely humble and kind. <laughs> Later, they realize that Elijah's the problem giving Israel information and they can't defeat Israel. So they decide to send the whole army against him. The servant comes popping out and says, Elijah, Elisha, I know you just don't understand. There's a whole army out here. And Elijah cruises out, calm, perfect faith, and says, Lord, open my servant's eyes. And when he does, he sees what is there all along. That we never see. But are here today and are in the world. There's holy angels and chariots of fire all around. Ready to do God's bidding in the spiritual realm. And the servant sees it and goes, oh. And he says, those who are with us are more than them. And then he says, Lord, uh, blind them, and all of a sudden the army of the enemy just kind of, they get into like a catatonic state, and they all march. And he leads them on a hike, and they walk into the camp of the Israelite army, and says, Lord, open their eyes, and they wake up. It's like, man, how do we get here? And they're surrounded by their enemies. Like, okay, okay, we'll have peace. He had faith, and was delivered from the edge of the sword. So many people could be listed here. Time would fail us. It has failed us. And we must move on. But the point being is that God delivers people. He delivers them from judgment. He delivers them from peril. He delivers them ultimately from the wrath to come. His own wrath against sin when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Seven, faith makes the weak strong. Who could we think of? Somebody, maybe somebody young, maybe a teenager, maybe somebody who was a shepherd. Maybe somebody who spent their life in the field dealing with sheep. David, son of Jesse. The Israelites were on one hill and the army and there's a little valley. And on the other side, I've actually stood in that valley and actually pulled out five smooth stones just to see what it was like. And you have the Philistines on one half and the Israelites on another. And as was common at that time, when you wanted to do battle, you could send each a champion forward and the champions could decide who won. So the, they send their guy out. He's huge. He's nine foot tall. You know, his spear is described as a weaver's beam. He's got, you know, bronze, uh, you know, armor all over his body, down through his shins. I mean, he's huge, a bronze helmet, this hulking guy. And he comes out and he defies Israel, says, send out a champion to me. But no, I mean, nobody's going to go out there. The guy's huge. The guy is huge. Even Saul, who is described as 
Head and shoulders above any, you know, Saul was probably seven feet. I mean, you know, he was or close to it because he was taller than anybody else in Israel wouldn't go out. Nobody would go out there, man. I'm not going to go fight that guy. And so for 40 days, the Philistine comes out once a day and mocks and degrades the Israelite army and just shames them into oblivion. Well, about that time, um, Jesse, David's father, uh, tells Jesse to come in from tending the sheep and says, you know what? I want you to go bring some supplies. Your brother, I thought this thing would be over. They've out there 40 days and so he goes out there with some you know goodies for his brother some lunch and when he goes out there his brothers think he has come out just to see them be shamed in front of Goliath and when he hears Goliath mocking the Israelite army and the God of Israel he has severe righteous indignation and so he goes to Saul and says listen I'll take him on and Saul first tries to dissuade him. He goes, listen, man, you are a youth. You don't even have to experience these things. You don't mean to go. He goes, I'll do it. Okay, if you go take my armor, he puts them on. You know, here's Saul, seven feet tall. He's got his armor, you know, his chain mail's dragging on the ground. I can't wear this. And what's amazing is, is David goes out and he just picks up a few stones and puts them in his little pouch. And we read in 1 Samuel, you want to turn to 1 Samuel, it's a pretty good text. Let me just find it for you. 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 and following, we read this. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin? But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give your de- give the dead bodies, the army of the Philistines, this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. And all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. I mean, he's he's a teenager. He's about 16. You know, he's not even shaving. He's cute. <laughs> and the contrast is so huge, because there is no way he's going to win. Except he's got the secret weapon. Faith in God. The text says he sprints at Goliath. He runs at him full force, grabbing a stone, putting it in his sling, swinging it around, and launches it at his head. And before Goliath knows it, he's got a splitting headache too. The stone just sinks into his forehead and he does this huge face plant as he just falls like a big oak tree on the ground. David then runs upon him, pulls out Goliath's own sword and hacks off his head. The Israelite army is so motivated by this that they rush forward and have a great slaughter against the Philistines. Why? Because one punk kid who wasn't even shaving yet trusted God and believed that God could do anything. And that the battle was the Lord's. And so we need to learn from David. 
that faith in an all-powerful God makes even the weak strong. Eight, faith makes one mighty in war. Jephthah, whose story is found in Judges chapter 11, 12, was the son of a harlot. He was driven away from home because he was illegitimate by his brothers. So he lived out by himself, kind of became mighty in war, associated with a bunch of worthless guys. They were kind of like pirates. And when the Israel is being oppressed by the Ammonites, they come to him and say, Hey, could, could you fight for us? Oh, you mean after you drove me away? After you treated me like dirt? You mean you want me to fight for you? Yeah. Okay. If I become ruler over you after that, okay, okay, they say. And he trusts God. He has faith in God. And though he made a rash vow and he just said, if God, if you, if you give me this victory over the Ammonites, whatever I meet when I come home, the first thing I meet, I'll sacrifice it to you as a burnt offering. It happened to be his daughter. And yet God responded to his faith and he had a great victory and overcame the army of the Ammonites. Now you may be thinking about this time, listen Jack, we, I don't have Philistines and I don't do war. I mean every once in a while I play maybe a video game or something and shoot some guys on there. But that's like the extent of my warfare. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're in a war. Ephesians 6.12 says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It doesn't say we might be in a battle or when we are in a battle or if we could be in a battle or in the future if we happen to fall into a battle. It's present. It's active. It's always going on. We are presently actively in a battle. And it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people, but it's against the world forces of darkness and the heavenly realms. Just as uh, uh, Elisha's servants saw the chariots all around of those holy angels, so there are demons all around. And they're waging war against you. And they're trying to keep the people from Christ. They're trying to shut down the gospel and trying to promote wickedness and trying to silence Christians and persecute the church. And yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This fortresses series he's talking about is ideologies. That is, he's talking about lies, deceptions, untruths in society that pervade the world. Those are the fortresses. And as Christians, because we have the truth, this is the primary weapon of our, the sword of the spirit is the primary weapon of our warfare and prayer. And the fellowship of the saints and all those things God has given us to do battle, to be strong, to stand up for the truth. And he goes on to say, for we are destroying, notice, we are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. And the whole point here is that as we go out, as we preach the gospel, as we speak up for the truth and say, no, God says this, the Bible says that. No, the Bible says this, the word of God says that. Jesus did this. No, that's wrong. This is right. This is right. This is wrong. We're destroying speculations and lofty thoughts raised up against the knowledge of God, which are described as fortresses. 
And so we definitely are in a war. And if you aren't in that war, you better get into it. Finally, and related, number nine, faith puts foreign armies to flight. When God called Gideon to war with the Midianites to put an end of their godless influence in the land, Gideon was afraid. He was so afraid, he just said, well, Lord, could, um, could we do a little fleece thing? You know, could we, like, you know, have the ground wet and the fleece dry? And then, oh, wait, wait, the next day, please don't be angry. Could we have, like, the wet fleece and the, the dry ground? He... Even though God was talking to him, he was so fearful. And oh, this is such a good lesson. He had, just like he was fearful of tearing down his father's idol worshiping center, so he was fearful of going against the Midianites. And it could be seen because then after he was, God gave him the two fleeces so he could know God wanted him to do it, he then went out and gathered. He must have just pleaded with people. He had, he got 32,000 men together to go to war. He's like, please come, please. We need all the people we can get. But he had forgotten that the battle is the Lord's. And God wanted to teach him that. And God wants to teach us that. You know, sometimes when you look in the world and you see all this wickedness, you can just think, oh, the odds are overwhelming. But the battle is the Lord's. And so God takes the 32 thousand men and reduces them to 10,000. Ah, oh, there's still too many. We'll send those home. So pretty soon it ends up 31,700 go home and 300 remain. There is no way they can win. It's impossible. They can't win. They can't win. And God says, you know, I've reduced you to this many people so that you don't get proud thinking that you, by your might, are going to win this battle. Because it's going to be me. And it's going to be so obvious to everyone that it's me. Because there's only 300 of you. And by the way, when you go after them, torches and pots. That's what I want. Now you can imagine, what? And so they go up at nighttime, get the torch, light it, stick in the pot, get up close break the pot, scream and yell. They all kill each other and run away. And the battle was the Lord's. One time I was able to talk to one of the military generals during the, what is it, the Seven Day War in, in Israel when they drove back the Arabs and you know basically drove them all the way back past the Red Sea in just a few days and and uh, he said, yeah, he says, the beginning of the battle, they were, they were surrounded. They were so... They were so much more fortified. They had they had arms. They were just they were ready to just wipe us out. So we went up on the top of the hill, and we had been reading this passage, and and we thought we'd do the same kind of thing. So we got every car we could, every car we could, and we parked them just out of sight, and we took off the mufflers. And at the signal, we all started our vehicles and revved the engine. It made such a huge, scary noise. They all fled. Just like before Gideon. And then, once having instilled fear in them, they just drove them all the way back to the Red Sea. I.W. Pink wrote, 
quote, the mighty works of men chronicled in the Old Testament are given for a higher purpose than indulging our love of the sensational. The exploits of Gideon and Barak, Samson and David, are only recorded in Holy Writ as they were wrought by faith. Thus, the, the Holy Spirit honors his own work. The faith of these men was very far from being perfect. They were men of like passions with us. And from the fact that we may take comfort, not in sheltering behind the same, but by refusing to despair when our faith is at a low ebb. It was during seasons of great spiritual darkness and gloom that faith wrought many of its mightiest works and achieved some of its most notable victories. For faith is not dependent on favorable outward conditions. It is sustained and energized by one who is infinitely superior to all circumstances, end quote. God's grace is put on display when he works through weak men in dark times. These are dark times. And we need to each go to God and say, give me the faith I need. Remember what Jesus taught us in Luke 17? It's not how much faith you have. It's the object of that faith because mustard seed size faith in an all-powerful God is sufficient. Jesus said in Mark 9.23, all things are possible to him who believes. Let's trust God and see what he does through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace and for this text. And we thank you for the example of sinners like us. Imperfect men and women who trusted you by faith. Not perfectly, but they trusted you. They believed you. And you were honored in that. And you were pleased to work through them incredible deeds. Do that through us as well. Use Calvary Bible Church as a great beacon of faith in this community that men may see our lives and see in us the the courage of David and the fearlessness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the faithfulness of Daniel. Help us to win those spiritual battles that wage all around us in the unseen realm. Battles for the souls of men. Battles that tempt us to idolatry and sin. Help us, Father, to live in such a way that we trust you so implicitly that no matter what happens to us, we respond in calm assurance because we have a God and the victory belongs to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.